Uh, Lord, we are um, just amazed at how you work in our lives. Um, 2019, um, you are still active, uh, one-on-one with people. And uh, God, you're active with us. You're active with us as uh, individuals, as moms and dads and husbands and wives and aunts and and uncles and uh, and church people. Um, you are uh, you make yourself available to us in such a miraculous way. God, thank you for that. Uh, and Lord, we do pray for Alyssa that as she goes on and and solicits more support, that you will direct her to the right churches and the right people. They will hear your call for her and that they will be compelled, if it be your will, to begin to support her. Lord, we love you and we praise you for it. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Well, we're still in Luke. And um, uh, Joe Shapko uh, asked me the other day, he said, do you you know how many uh, messages you've done in Luke? And I said, 65? He goes, 85. He said it kind of like, are you kidding me? No, he didn't say it that way. Uh, last week, uh, we took a little bit of a break because it was uh, it was Thanksgiving weekend. The week before that, we went off on a rabbit trail. I promised you I would warn you when rabbit trailers are, are coming. We call, we call them RTAs. And there's about a half an RTA today. But I trust you will find it interesting and fascinating. Um, something I was sharing with someone earlier <clears throat> today that some of the things I've learned in studying, for, I guess for a number of years, but maybe even more so in the last couple of years, is to study the Scriptures word by word, not Scripture by Scripture, but word by word. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a Hebrew and a Greek dictionary out and get the original meanings. It's just that there's so much packed into a single Scripture that if you read it word by word, I have found that you just pay attention to each word, things begin to open up a little bit. And the other thing I learned was look at what the Scriptures do not say and make no assumption that just because this Scripture is heading, heading this direction that it connecting eight, uh, point A to point B to point C, do not assume that it goes to point C. It doesn't always. And there's a lot of information in understanding that as well. So, for what that's worth, here we go. So, last week we took a bit of a break and studied uh, thankfulness. Two weeks ago we did some research on two of the uh, players regarding the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. I'm going to do a little bit of a review on that because it's been a little while. Those two fellows, by the way, whose names have been preserved for all of human history. Think about that. These two people who played a significant role in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and not in a good way, because they did not mean it for good, their, their names have been preserved for all of history. Their names are Annas and Caiaphas. They were the previous and current high priest. And Annas being the father-in-law of Caiaphas. So it was a dynasty. <clears throat> One of the things we learned was that following the crucifixion, they had not changed. They were still the same prideful, arrogant, and narcissistic men they had always been. 
having met Jesus, having heard Jesus, observed his miracles, unsuccessfully challenging Jesus, condemning Jesus, executing Jesus, and instructing the guards to lie about the resurrection of Jesus, they remained unmoved and unredeemed. They remained as most of the world has remained, unconvinced by his words, works, or resurrection, that he has indeed that he was indeed who he said he was, and he continues to be that person. As far as we know, they remained condemned and died in their sin. There's no scripture that says anything differently than that. It's an assumption we can make, but it's not even really an important assumption. Because that's not, that's not who the Bible's about. And by the way, they knew something only a few others knew that should have even persuaded them more. They knew that no one had stolen the body of Jesus. They had concocted that lie and paid the guards to spread it. The rest of the apostles did not know, other than the fact they know he had been raised from the dead. But the, the general public typically believed that Jesus could not possibly have risen from the dead. And so they believed. As a matter of fact, they believe it to this day. The whole thing was a scam. With all of these things in mind, we observed how they handled a situation in the temple courts when Peter healed a beggar. As you may remember, Peter and John were on their way to prayer meeting in the temple when they encountered this man lying at the gate beautiful. And this is recorded for us in the third and fourth chapters of Acts. And we went there last week, and it should be referenced on your scripture sheet. And at that point in the story, we closed our time together by reading Luke 22, verse 8, where we had left off the previous week. We're coming very quickly to what we're going to talk about today. So for the sake of context, I would like to read to you the first few verses of chapter 22. You can read along on your scripture sheet. Luke 22, verse uh, verse 1 says this, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. Do you remember some of the things that were surrounding that? The Sanhedrin council was meeting in Caiaphas's house, trying to figure out how they could somehow spirit Jesus away. And they had this one big problem. No one knew where they went at night. And they gave up on uh, perhaps being able to find this out because they considered the twelve and they were certain none of the twelve would betray Jesus. But his uh, church history says that even while they were having this meeting, Judas (coughs) stole away from Olivet, and walked into this meeting and said, I can deliver him to you. And, of course, we know about the exchange of the money. That comes later in our unending study of Luke. 
uh, when we actually study uh, what's going on there, just probably in a couple weeks or so. Um, so the Passover is celebrated the day before the celebration of unleavened bread. But see, their problem was they couldn't find a way to, to, get, uh, to arrest him without stirring up the anger of the crowd. Luke 22, 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb must be sacrificed. It gets kind of interesting right here, and I think it just gets more and more interesting as we go. A point of interest, there were two interpretations of when the Passover began and ended. And this will come into play because uh, there will appear to be a conflict or an inconsistency in scriptures, and there really isn't one. So we're going to tackle this right now, but not to a large degree. The northern kingdom celebrated from sunrise to sunrise. The southern kingdom celebrated from sunset to sunset. You see the overlap? Now, there are a couple of reasons that that was beneficial. Number one, it kept the two kingdoms separated. This wasn't something that someone had set up, by the way. This is something that, quote, just happened. The two kingdoms were separated at that point because they did not get along with each other. And so there's a million people in Jerusalem. There's another million that has come into Jerusalem. It's the Passover celebration. Everything is in high gear. Everything is exciting. People's emotions are up. And the fact that the one kingdom came in, and this is, this is their celebration, sunrise to sunrise. The, the other king, southern sing, uh, kingdom, this is their celebration, sunset to sunset. So it kept them separated at the time of Passover, and it gave the priests more time to fulfill their sacrificial duties. There were hundreds of thousands of lambs that had to be sacrificed. That gave the priests 48 hours. And still be within the Passover. So then we read this. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Olivet, all twelve apostles, probably more people, and Jesus singles out Peter and John, and last week we asked the question, is that a big deal? And we said, well, our God is a God of economy, which means everything's a big deal. Because everything is perfect and done perfectly. So not only can we surmise why he asked Peter and John specifically, but we can also surmise that he asked them Privately. So, something about Peter and John. In the first 12 chapters of Acts, we see a passionate and pro- proactive Simon Peter and John, and he carries the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews. God said to the apostles, Minister to my people. Following the crucifixion and resurrection, 
Peter was no longer the guy that sat around the fire and said, I swear to you, and he actually swore. Think about that. I do not know him. And now he's proactive and he's even aggressive. And of course we know that John writes his account of the life of Christ in the Gospel of John. Then he writes three more letters instructing church leadership concerning the duties of the church leadership and pens what has become known as Revelation. So the point here is not so much what they accomplished, but that Jesus was preparing them to till the ground for the establishment of the church and his second coming. Now, the other seven, and then the one who replaced Judas, he was doing the same thing with them. But remember the inner circle, right? Peter, James, and John. And God took two of these, Jesus did, and he said, I want you in his heart and mind, I want you to experience things during the, my end time hours that's going to be incredibly important for you. And he says, I want you two to go and prepare the Passover meal. And he asked them privately, how do we know that? Because a spy was among them. Jesus undoubtedly knew that Judas was about to betray him. And as we have continually said, timing was of the essence. Think about this for a moment. Of the billions of hours, minutes, and seconds that preceded Christ's death on the cross, and the billions of hours, minutes, and seconds that followed Christ's death on the cross, God had chosen, even before the sin of Adam, six hours that had to be reserved for his son to be arrested, tried, and crucified. Billions. Billions before the cross of hours. Billions of hours and minutes after the cross. A sliver of time. And God said, it's that. Those six hours are reserved for the cross. Is every decision important? God did not unwittingly fall into the leadership's plans that would lead to the crucifixion of Jesus. The leadership unwittingly fell into God's master plan of fulfilling all prophecies so that Christ would be crucified in His time and for His glory. Back to our story. Jesus summons Peter and John privately and gives them a mission. Jesus is very careful not to reveal to anyone else what Peter and John have been asked to do. Why? Because there's a spy in the midst. The more people you tell something and tell them not to say anything, the more people say things. I know that doesn't happen in church. I'm just saying out in the world. So here's Jesus' plan. Peter and John... Come here. I want you to go into the city 
and I want you to prepare for the Passover meal. And no one else is hearing this. I'm convinced no one else is hearing this. And we'll even get into that a little bit more. It says, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. It is fair to say that all of them knew they would be celebrating the Passover. Do you not think so? Because they did it every year. And they would be celebrating together just as they had done in the past. However, I believe that this time the location had to remain unknown to all but Peter and John and Jesus. Lest Judas reveal the location to the leadership that he had promised to deliver Jesus to. Now, why would Jesus be so stealth about this whole thing? Because it was not yet time. Then Peter and John ask a very good question. And, and say, I can, I can kind of see this. Peter and John, go in and prepare the Passover. Now, it takes some time to do that, by the way. And so they asked a very good question. Um, where would you have us prepare it? Now, preparing the Passover takes time and planning. Also keep in mind that there were two million people who needed the same type of arrangements in Jerusalem. This is when Holiday and Express charges you $700 a night instead of fifty-eight sixty. Jesus gives them an answer that I am sure was at least somewhat bewildering to the two apostles. This is his answer. He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. So perhaps with a little bit of a raised eyebrow, they're... Jesus, do you mean any man carrying water? This isn't scripture. Do you mean any man carrying water or the first man we see carrying water? Is there a specific man that will be carrying water? Well, according to tradition, men didn't carry water. It was ladies. So that's the first clue. And the next thing he said is, he will meet you. So if you're going into Jerusalem and it's packed with people who all look the same, carrying the same things with the same sacrifices, Lord, we're one in two million. He will meet you. And then the question is, well, what are we to do when we find him? And, G and Jesus answers this. It's, it's an implied question. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is a guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And up to this point, Christ's name has not yet been mentioned by John or Peter. A lot of rabbis there, and those are teachers, with a lot of students. So when John and Peter said, the teacher, this wasn't unusual for this man to hear. But this is what happened. See, Jesus knew that his hour was at hand. Therefore, he was protecting the plan of God, which included dictating the time in which Judas not only would betray him, but could not betray him. So everything is stealth. These two guys show up. There's a guy carrying a pitcher or a uh, ceramic-type jug of water. He sees them. He comes up to them. 
and they follow him there, and he goes to the master of the house and says, the teacher wants to know if, if we can have our Passover here. He secretly sends Peter and John to prepare for the Passover. This would take some time to get ready. They probably did not have time to return to Olivet. This would mean that the only three people who knew the location for the Passover meal of Jesus and the two apostles was no one. Can you begin to see how in control Jesus was of every minuscule detail of the events heading to his crucifixion? Let's think for a moment what is at stake for Satan right now. The fulfillment of prophecy always has been and is Satan's worst nightmare. Especially these prophecies. As the events begin to unfold, he is very aware that his ultimate doom is approaching. The battle which he had already lost to God in the spirit world will become manifest in the physical world. Satan knows what he is in for. He is frantically trying to derail this whole thing. He's not assisting Jesus getting to the cross. He's trying to prevent it. And he is not so much concerned that Jesus might be crucified, although this is a concern, as he is that he will be crucified according to prophecy. Crucify Christ if you must, but don't do it during these six hours. He's concerned he's going to be crucified according to prophecy and at God's appointed time, which is the exact hour of the sacrificing of the Passover lambs. He will be sacrificing his life as the Lamb of God. If one single prophecy went unfulfilled, then Jesus was not and is not the Messiah. Perfection. Every prophecy given concerning Jesus Christ for those that have passed have come true and some in the future will indeed come true. Because if one of those fails then he's an imposter. And he's no imposter. We're beginning to understand the tension and the extent of the spiritual warfare that is taking place behind the scenes. Every decision, every action, and every hour is accounted for. Every hour. And we can see proof of this in the Scriptures. In the book of John, we read the following Scriptures where the, the Scripture said concerning Jesus, His hour had not yet come. John 7, 8 says this, You go up to the feast. He's telling His apostles, You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. He knew that if He went up to that feast, there was danger. That He would not be able to fulfill all the prophecies. John seven thirty. So they were seeking to arrest Him, but no one laid a hand on Him. Why? Because His hour had not yet come. 
John 8.20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Concerning the incarnate Jesus Christ, from the time he was born, he was on the path to become the ultimate sacrificial lamb that would be led to the slaughter on a specific day to die at a specific hour to fulfill his Father's will for his Father's glory and for our sake. Now, in these days that we're talking about now, the narrative is changing. In his final days of ministry, we read the following, John twelve twenty three, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 13, 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, Get this, and he loved them to the end. He loved us to the end. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. John 17, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he's lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And finally, Mark fourteen forty one. and there's more of these. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping? You know where this took place, right? In the garden. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? He says, It is enough. And here's his declaration. The hour has come. See, up until then, the hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Well, how about you this morning? Has your hour come? Is this your hour? Has God brought you to a place this morning where you are realizing that something is different as you hear these same scriptures that you've always heard? I can assure you that just as in the incarnate life of Jesus, that from the time you were conceived, you embarked on a path that would ultimately lead you to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how do we know this about you? Because you're here this morning and you're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's no accident. And just like the life of Jesus, every season of your life, every year of your life, every hour of your life, and every breath of your life, right down to the final exhale, is numbered. Nothing will change that. Please eat healthy. You're going to die anyway, but you'll die healthier. At least you'll have fun right up to the end. I love... What were you going to say? No one cares. And in the final analysis of one's life, your life will glorify God, 
either as a testimony to his justice through judgment or as a testimony to his justice through grace. You know, um, evangelism, to me, is a lot easier than trying to help people who have been deceiving into believing they're saved when they're not. And there's one particular group of religious people that's the most difficult people to minister to that I've ever tried to minister to. And they're so secure in how they've been raised. And this is nothing against anybody, but it's, it's Catholicism. It's Catholicism. They read about the same Jesus. They read about the same God. They read about the same apostles. And they are given a schematic that if you do these things, by the way, which are impossible, just so you know, just like it is with us, <laughs> that you're going to end up in heaven. And one of my greatest concerns is that we have people in our midst at any given on any given Sunday, and we, we look right, we talk right, we do right. Um, we've been at church most of our lives. We may be in ministry. And... There's a great deception going on. That's my concern. And so when you start having your checklist, have I done these things? The checklist comes up and you go, yeah. But God doesn't work on a checklist. He just doesn't. He, uh, he works uh, on repentance. Um, so my, my prayer this morning is if anybody's here and they're saying, I don't think that's Tom talking to me. But someone is. My prayer is that even if you have to say, I don't know, do these two things. Repent and receive. Repent and receive. What's repent? Turn away. Turn away from sin. I can't do that all my life. Neither can I. Here's the greatest challenge for the Christian life. It's continually living in repentance. Continually turning away from your sin. When it screams at you, there's great guilt and shame that can come into your life as a believer when you choose to surrender to sin. So not only must you repent and receive to be saved, you must live in a life of repentance. Not to remain saved, but to honor God. To honor God. And your life will be just a whole lot better. Lord, we love you. And God, this is our prayer. That as confusing as the enemy wants to make salvation, and, and it is serious, Lord, and we know that.
that your Holy Spirit will break through and minister to people today. Perhaps He needs to minister to those of us who believe we're saved and yet there's a little bit of doubt and maybe we're two different people. Whatever that may be, Lord, you're calling. And we thank you for that. I pray for their surrender, Lord. Father, I pray that if you're leading them to pray, give them the courage to come up and just let us pray with them. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.